Today's reading is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another, with these words. This is God's word. Thanks, Kerry. Do keep the Bible open. If we've not met, my name's Phil. I'm the assistant minister here. We've got a fabulous passage to look at, but as ever, we need God's help. So let's pray as we turn to God's word. Our Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to hear words and to know their truth this morning. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with hope a real robust hope, a hope that will make a difference to how we live each day in this world, a hope that will change how we cope with disappointments, and a hope that ultimately will enable us to face death very differently. Amen. Christianity is not just the answer to questions about the spiritual side of life. Christianity is also the answer to the most fundamental question of all human existence. See, the most fundamental fact of human existence is that it ends. It doesn't go on forever. There is death. And even if we can get through the early part of our life, as some of us do with no bereavements at all, there is one funeral that every single person here will have to attend. Your own. Death has an appointment in the calendar, for each and every one of us here. Now, we don't know what that date is fixed for, but be assured, eventually every human who walks this earth will meet that appointment with death. It might be a horrific, ignominious end like Colonel Gaddafi had. It may be a fated, loved, adored end like Steve Jobs But eventually, every single one of us here will become worm food. That is our destiny. And so we search for answers. And every culture in all of history has some sort of answer, some sort of hope in the face of death. These days, uh, an awful lot in our culture just wallow in shallow sentimentalism. Well, she's gone to a better place is about all that we can muster. But more seriously, it seems to me that modern secular Britain turns to two places, really, to deal with death. We turn to technology and we turn to therapy. There are great hopes. We hope that technology will put off death through medical work or perhaps even conquer death. Uh, I read recently in Vanity Fair that Barbara Streisand has been genetically cloning her dogs. We know celebrities are weird and it's wonderful to have it confirmed. Her beloved dog... (laughs) It's true. It's, uh, her beloved dog, Samantha, died. I think a 12-year-old dog died last year, and she could not bear the loss. So she went to a, 
a high-tech lab in Korea and had them genetically create two new dogs from the DNA of Samantha, Miss Violet and Miss Scarlet. The names are the least weird thing about that whole carry-on. <laughs> but what was really interesting is that she now says she regrets it because although the new dogs are genetically identical with Samantha, they're different. They've got different personalities. She said they're not the same dog. You can have all the money and all the technology in the world, but you can't cheat death. Technology does not enable us to cheat the grim reaper. And so we turn to therapy. We seek to counsel ourselves around death. But therapy only goes so far. There was a striking article in The Guardian this week, uh, Why I Lied to My Therapists, by Melissa Broder. She wrote, I just watched a man die my boyfriend's stepfather, the first death I'd ever actually seen up close. Seated on my therapist's avocado green sofa, I told her about my existential terror. She replied to me using words meant to soothe, but I don't recall what she said. All I could hear were my own thoughts. My therapist cannot change the fact I'm going to die. She can't even change the fact she's going to die. Compared with death, my therapist is just a crappy pound shop hairbrush. It's brutally honest. We can talk about it. We can counsel one another, but we can't stop it. The various religions and philosophies of the world all talk about death, all seek to explain what will happen, and they all do give a measure of comfort some sort of understanding. But the ugly reality is that when death actually comes, they are powerless. And Christianity is different. The reason for that is that at the heart of Christianity is Christ, Jesus, who didn't only die for sins on the cross. He then punched out of the back end of the grave and rose to new life, new physical life, unending life. In his resurrection, he conquered death. And so he sets us free from the power of death, but also from the fear of death. His resurrection brings life, and it brings hope to all who will trust in him. Okay, let's get into the passage, and we'll see how Paul displays this for us. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. That, it's interesting, the sleep. We, we think of death as sleep because of this, really. Uh, the word cemetery comes from the Greek word to sleep. The Bible recognizes death is not the end. We sleep in death. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, if you've been concentrating as we've worked our way through First Thessalonians, you will have been waiting for this. You see, uh, back in chapter 1, Paul thanked God for how the Thessalonians have become real, genuine Christians. And he did so in a way which is typical in the New Testament. He talked about three things they have which proved that they were real, genuine Christians. Flick back a page, chapter 1, verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Real Christians. Hope, love, and faith. But while they were genuine, they weren't yet mature. 
And so we read, uh, Timothy reported back to Paul in Athens. So Paul was a, there was a riot. Paul and Timothy had to leave very quickly. They'd only been there around three weeks in Thessalonica. And so Paul, when he gets to Athens, sends back Timothy to find out how things are going. And Timothy reports back. We looked at the report a couple of weeks ago. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and love. Still doing really well on faith in God, A plus in love for other people. But do you notice what he doesn't mention at all? Hope. Something has gone wrong with their hope. And two out of three might get you a 2-1 at university, but it's no use at all as a Christian. It's a disaster. If there's no hope, if there's no answer to death, then the whole thing falls apart. Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, well, we're of all people to be most pitied. Christianity is a complete and utter waste of time if it doesn't have hope in the face of death. But there is hope. And so now in 4.13, Paul starts to unpack for them, to remind them about the hope. Okay, why is this a problem for the Thessalonian church? Well, it's not very surprising. We learn in Acts 17, Paul has only been there three weeks. I mean, how much did you know after three weeks in church? It's extraordinary how well they're doing. But he's really not had time to teach them much more than the ABCs. And in passing, it is interesting to note that he doesn't say, well, look, you're genuine Christians. You have the Holy Spirit, so I'm sure you can now work things out. He'll lead you into all truth. No, he knows. Even genuine Christians who have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us need the word of God if we're to know the truth about God. And so he writes to them. He is the apostle commissioned by Jesus to take God's word and teach it authoritatively. And they can't just work this stuff out through the Holy Spirit in their conscience. It's not how it works. They need to be taught through God's word. And so he writes to them, and he also writes for us. Now, you can summarize his teaching here pretty simply. It's don't grieve without hope. Don't grieve without hope. But hope is a, is a word that means different things in our culture from in the Bible. So in our culture, hope is certainty of timing, uncertainty of outcome. I hope the sun will shine tomorrow. Tomorrow will happen, but I don't know what the outcome will be, whether it will be sunny or or rain. The Bible uses hope differently. In the Bible, hope is certainty of outcome, uncertainty of timing. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, put it this way. They tell how you turn from to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Certain outcome, Jesus is coming back, and so you're waiting for him, uncertain timing. We don't know when it'll be. And he gives them two reasons why they should have hope, even as they grieve the dead in the remaining verses. Just two reasons. They're they're on your sheets there. Jesus rose again and we will rise with him and Jesus will return and we will be with him. Verse 14, back in chapter four. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's very simple logic at work here in verse 14. Jesus Christ died, and then three days later, he rose again. Matter of historical fact. Therefore, if people fall asleep in Christ, trusting in him, united with him, then they too will rise. 162 times the New Testament uses this tiny little phrase, in Christ or in him. Describes something called faith union. And what this means is actually very, very important. It means that if you put your faith in Christ, you are so tightly tied to him that what happens to him happens to you. What is true of him is true for you. He is perfect in the sight of God and you are in him and therefore perfect in the sight of God. He has risen to new life and so you too will share in that new life. There's a royal wedding happening next weekend apparently. Um, somebody called Harry and a lady called Megan are getting married and some people are very, very excited about it. Now, when uh, Meghan marries Harry, all the royal privileges, titles, wealth, honor, and everything else that is Harry's by right as the queen's son will now be hers by relationship. Actually, uh, Meghan's not like a lot of the, uh, the, the, the sort of royal consorts. She, she's, she's a pretty impressive woman in her own right. Uh, she's pretty wealthy and has a whole lot going for her that uh, Harry gets to share in. Everything that she owns by right, I mean, yeah, he's a long way away from the throne these days. Every time his brother has another kid, he gets further. And the, everything that she has by right is his. See, the things that those as individuals are theirs by right, things they've earned, when they get married, their spouse, it's theirs by relationship. It's theirs too. It's like that with us in Christ. Everything that is his by right well, if you trust in him, it's yours by relationship. We share in the benefits of his death and resurrection. Our, our sins are paid for because we were united with him on the cross. And our eternal life is secure because we're united with him in his resurrection. If you trust in Jesus Christ, for you, death is not a full stop. It's just a comma. Jesus rose from the dead to eternal life. And if you trust in him, you too will share in that resurrection. Now, verse 15 shows uh, how the Thessalonians are confused about all of this. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. It seems that the Thessalonians expected Jesus to come back any moment. And so when people in the church died before Jesus has come back, They've just despaired over them. They, they seem to be worried that those people will, will miss out entirely. Uh, the word proceed is in the sense of uh, it's to get an advantage over someone, to outrank them. It's proceed in the sense of they got to the buffet first and cleared up all the good stuff. Uh, why, why would they think that about the resurrection? Well, it may be that they knew from the Old Testament that the only believers who actually ascended to heaven in the Old Testament were people who were alive at the time. So Enoch and Elijah, who were alive on the earth and then taken up to heaven. So perhaps they thought that only those who are still alive when Jesus returns will be taken up to heaven to be with him in full glory. Those who die, well, I don't know whether they don't rise again, they thought, or, or maybe it's, uh, they rise, but it's a sort of economy class status. They don't have bodies or something. 
I mean, we mustn't be too harsh on them for this confusion. Three weeks is all they've been taught. But in his answer, Paul quotes something that Jesus obviously said, but wasn't recorded in the four Gospels, verse 15, according to the Lord's word. And he makes it clear that we who are still alive when the Lord comes will not precede others. He says, look, it, it doesn't matter whether you, uh, you're alive when Jesus returns or your body was buried hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. You'll, you'll rise the same. It's like getting on a plane to go, to go on holiday. There are, airports are a wonderful way of splitting humanity into some of our psychological groupings. There are, and there's nothing worse than finding people are different from you. I hate traveling with those people who say, it is a waste of time if you get on the plane unless you've been paged three times in the airport. I do not like that person. Do not go on holiday with me if you are that person. I like to be at the front of the line. Just, I mean, who knows what might happen? I just like to be at the front of the line. It's just, yep, I'm weird. I don't care. Um, I've not missed a flight ever. Um, the, but the truth is, it doesn't matter whether you're at the front of the line, you've paid for your priority booking. No, I don't do that. Or you have been paged three times and they're about to take your bags off the plane just before you get in. As long as you get in the plane, as long as you're in the plane, you'll make it to paradise just the same. It doesn't matter whether you're the last person to put faith in Christ before he comes back or whether you were one of the very first believers in the first century. If you're in Christ, you still get to paradise. It's all the same. That's his first point, very simply. Jesus rose again and all who trust in him will rise with him. It doesn't matter whether you're alive when he returns or you died beforehand. All will rise and all will be with him. Now, secondly, in verses 16 to 17, he goes into a bit more detail. Like, okay, well, what is going to happen? And in summary, he says, Jesus will return and we will be with him. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I hate aggressive sounding alarm clocks. My current alarm is a harp music. Uh, but God doesn't seem to do gentle alarm calls. There will come the time when the God of the universe will take up a trumpet and he will blow a note so loud that the dead will wake up from around the world. Now, I've got to be honest, we don't know how much of the details of verse 16 to 17 are literal and how much are figurative. Uh, and in one sense, that doesn't matter. What we do know is that the Jesus who rose back to physical life will physically return. It will be loud, and it will be clear enough that all the world will know about it. And when he returns, the, the dead will rise for judgment. And interestingly, verse 16, far from being left behind or disadvantaged, the dead in Christ will rise first. But before we get on to verse 17, it is probably just worth saying, we're not told what happens to us between death and the return of Jesus in this passage. But the rest of Scripture tells us that at death... Our souls go to be with Jesus in heaven if we trust him. It's the, the, the emphasis of this passage is what happens really to our bodies. But it's clear from the rest of the Bible, our souls go to be with Jesus in heaven if we trust him. So in Philippians 1.23, Paul says, you know what? I'd quite like to die because that way I get to depart to be with Christ. Uh, Jesus himself told the thief on the cross in Luke 23, today you will be with me in paradise. And then when Jesus returns, those who die will be given new bodies. There'll be the resurrection. 
Okay, um, but what will happen and what about those of us who are still alive? Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It is a mind-blowing image, and I do not know how you uh, work out logistically what's going to take place. But the big idea is clear. Jesus will return, and he won't be as a humble baby in an obscure part of the world. It'll be in blazing glory this time. He appears in the sky, and all who trust in him will be drawn up to join him. There are huge um, theological debates about which geographical area of the world the Lord will return to. And frankly, it doesn't matter much. Actually, I think the strongest case can be made from here that he is returning to Britain. (laughs) We will meet him in the clouds. (laughs) Anyway, it doesn't matter. Whatever, he will return and the whole world will be able to see it. The whole world will see it. We will rise with him if we trust in him and we will be with him forever. That's the most important part of the Bible's teaching about eternity. It is with him, with Jesus. The scripture says a remarkably little amount by way of detail of what the new creation will look like. It's with him. I mean, it may be our minds just can't comprehend a description of the new world. And so instead... The Bible focuses on the heart of eternal life as being with him, with God, with the Lord Jesus forever. And there's an awful lot you can work out just from that. What does it mean? Well, it helps us remind us that it'll be a physical place. Jesus took a physical body when he rose from the dead. And we'll be, we're told, like him, transformed so that our bodies will be like his glorious body, Philippians 3.19. So it'll be a physical place and we'll have physical bodies. And just think about what Jesus was like and what it was like for those who were with him when he walked the earth the first time. Because in one sense, that is the movie trailer for the full feature film that is coming. Uh, When sickness and death appeared, he got rid of them. He healed and he raised. So it'll be a place where there will be no sickness or death. If we're with him, there can't be sickness or death. When raging evil appeared, well, when it was systemic evil, he spoke out against it. When it was demonic, he cast it out. But evil had no power over him and could not be around him. So it'll be a place where there is no evil in structures, in people, in anything. All evil gone. It'll also be a place which is fun, though. For all the seriousness of Jesus' ministry, the disciples had a laugh, we're told. The religious leaders are always criticizing Jesus at the beginning. He's partying. We don't like people who party. They, they, they have fun, and that's not what we like. And it was one of their big criticisms of him. He's partying with people who have fun. Jesus was like that. He restored relationships. He dealt gently with broken people. It'll be a place where people are put back together and people are brought back together. I don't know how we'll work out eating meat, which I kind of think there has to be if there's no death, but I trust a guy who can feed 5,000 people out of nothing. He'll work out the details. 
And we do know the wine's going to be good. You know, that we really do know. We'll be with him forever. And in the light of all this, verse 18 tells us, encourage one another with these words. We're to encourage one another. See, the Bible's vision of church is not one mouth and a whole heap of ears. It's not that the ministers do all the talking and everybody else listens. No, we are to all encourage one another with the truth of the Bible. When sickness and bereavement come, as they inevitably do, as they regularly do to our community, then we all have the the responsibility and the joy of being able to share the hope of Christianity with one another. And we're to encourage one another with these words. There is nothing that robs us of speech more than death. I mean, what do you say to someone who's lost a son or a daughter, a husband, a wife, father, mother, brother, sister? What do you say? You don't have to invent stories to make death more palatable. We have the solid, bankable certainties of the word of God to offer. The word that promised the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then delivered on that. The same word that promises you and me that if we trust in Christ, well, there is the promise of new life and to be with him forever. Well, okay, so how do we encourage those who are coming to terms with death? Well, come back to verse 13. I think this phrase is so helpful. We grieve, but not without hope. So we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. Firstly, help people grieve and give them the time to do so. Don't think that the certainty of gospel hope means, well, death is nothing. It's a danger I think sometimes Christians fall into. As if, well, if you're a Christian and they were a Christian, you shouldn't cry at all at their funeral. No, Jesus is our model in this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, as he stands at the tomb of Lazarus, his dear friend, in John 11. But he weeps with the family as they weep. We mourn with those who mourn. I was chatting about this with someone and they said they'll always remember what their mum said when a friend was uh, rather brutally bereaved. She said, I'm just going around to cry with them. It's exactly right. We must, must, must not crush people with hope. Don't make hope an unbearable burden that people have to live up to, Christians here. Allow people to grieve. It's right to grieve. Death remains our enemy. And death remains horrible. Cry with them. Grieve with them. And encourage them to grieve properly. But encourage them to grieve with hope. You see, there is a time for encouragement, for sharing the glorious promises of Scripture. See, when I am my lowest, I need others to tell me God's truth. I hope you'll do that for me. And I promise that I will try to do it for you. Quietly, gently assuring one another with the words of Scripture that there is a resurrection hope is a very important thing to do. Reading Psalm 23, or the great vision of Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, John 11, Romans 8, 37 to 39, or even these words from 1 Thessalonians 4, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Uh, my my grandfather was, uh, he almost died on a number of occasions before he actually died. He almost died many times. He was a man of 
prayer, a real man of prayer. And he encouraged others uh, to pray uh, with the way that he drove. Um, and uh, uh, he, was, uh, he drove a number of years past when it would have been ideal, to be honest. And you'd, you'd be in the car with him. He was a very small man. Uh, and he'd come over from New Zealand, slightly more empty roads where they live. And never can quite find second gear or third. I always find fourths the easiest. So we'll just go for that, shall we? <laughs> Uh, it was uh, quite an experience driving with him. When he did finally die after a year in hospital after a debilitating stroke, his funeral was full of hope as well as grief. There was a lot of laughter as we remembered him and his driving, uh, and there were tears as we faced the bitter reality that he was gone, that he was dead, and that he was no longer with us. We grieved, but it was not a hopeless grief because we were entrusting him to the Jesus he loved, who is the resurrection and the life. Um, the old rector at St. Helen's Bishopsgate, Dick Lucas, led the prayers that day. And I'll never forget how he began them. He said, let us pray. We're not going to bother praying for Charles. There's no need. He's safe. We'll pray for ourselves, though. We grieve. We need prayer. Let's pray. It was, just, it was brilliant. It was classic Dick Lucas, but it was brilliant. He was right. Why would you pray for someone who's safe with Jesus? What a waste of time. But we grieved, and so we needed prayer. I have to say the heaviest, the hardest thing I ever have to do as a minister is to take funerals where there is no Christian hope. It is important to love and serve people in their grief, but it is so painful when there is no gospel shedding light into the darkness of death. So, so painful. By contrast, I was at a funeral with a number of others here only a few weeks ago at about the most tragic death imaginable. Wonderful Christian family known to lots here whose son struggled terribly with depression and took his own life as a teenager. It's about as hopeless, as tragic as you can imagine anything being. And yet, and yet it was a Christian funeral. The boy trusted in Christ and so did the family. And so, as well as tears of bitter grief, there was hope, real hope at that funeral. Since, uh, since that day, uh, a number of times, Graham has posted things on um, Facebook. and he, he posted something quite recently. He said, the pain is just overwhelming, but we are clinging to the promises of God. Grieving, but not without hope. I want to ask you a pointed question now, which is, where is your hope this morning? What do you cling to in the face of death? Do you have an answer that can withstand death? Do you have a way of looking at the world, a belief system, a worldview, whatever you want to call it, but do you have one that doesn't just sound clever at a dinner party or down the pub, but one which stands firm at a graveside. In Christ, we have a hope that is real and unshakable. And we have a hope that's a wonderful apologetic for the gospel. A hope that speaks of the reality and power of the message of Jesus Christ to those who don't yet know him. A hope that transforms every disappointment in this life. And a hope that enables us to face death. Because it's grounded in a historical fact. There is no tomb 
with the body of Jesus Christ. He rose. And if you put your trust in him, then, well, you may well be buried at some point, but your body will not stay there forever. I'm pretty sure the sun's going to rise tomorrow morning. I doubt we'll be able to see it through the clouds and mist, but I'm absolutely certain I'll see my grandfather and my brother again because they died trusting in Jesus. And he rose, and so they will rise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray to you, not to your memory, for you are alive. We pray to you and we praise you for the hope that we have that in your resurrection there is hope, certain hope, certain hope in the face even of death. We pray that you would help us to, if we've never worked these things out, to investigate the evidence for your resurrection. And we pray that as we grow in certainty and confidence of your resurrection, we would live out that hope. And we pray that we would be bright shining lights in a dark world as we share the hope of the gospel to those who need it. Help us, we pray, to grieve, but to do so with hope. Amen.